So we're in the book of Acts today. Um, to set the, the context here, this, these chapters, so this summer we're working through the book of Acts. And the chapters that we're looking at today are really the climax of the cl- conflict that's happening in Jerusalem. As the gospel is going forth, as Jesus is being proclaimed first in Jerusalem among the Jews, and then to Samaria and to the ends of the earth as Jesus promised in Acts 1, what's happening here in these first chapters of the book of Acts is that there's conflict and tension. And this often happens when the gospel goes forth. So in, uh, in the first few chapters of Acts, we've seen now as uh, the Jewish uh, people who should have known that the Messiah is coming. And they've been anticipating and awaiting this day, and they've got their Old Testaments handy, and they're ready for what God is going to do to break forth in this world, to bring deliverance, to restore his plan, to spread his love and his joy and in, in all of his good creation. These very Jewish people are the ones that have rejected the Messiah that God sent, his son Jesus. And so Peter, in his message on the day of Pentecost, is connecting all the dots. And he's saying, read your Old Testament. Jesus is the Messiah. And then again in chapter 4, before the Jewish leaders, he's proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ once again. And yet there is opposition. So there's this mixture of people who are getting it, and they're uh, turning to Jesus in big numbers. 3,000 on the day of Pentecost, 5,000 by a couple chapters later. So this movement is going viral. This recognition as, of Jesus as the King, as the Messiah, is catching on and it's getting some legs and some traction. And yet there's still this opposition. This is the way it works. When we as followers of Jesus proclaim King Jesus, there will be a mixture of responses. Some people will find hope and joy and they will repent and find out that there is meaning to this life. Others will oppose us and reject that message of truth because they're still serving other gods. And so there's this confrontation that is occurring. Really, it comes to a head at the end of chapter 7, the first few verses of chapter 8, the stoning of Stephen, the first martyr in the early church there in chapter 7. There's a a man standing by giving permission for this all to occur. His name is Saul. And so Saul is introduced. And then in chapter 8, the beginning, we find out that great persecution breaks out there in the early church. And yet, the movement is not stopped. This is not something of man. It's not something that humans concocted. If it were, you turn up the heat a little bit, you increase the pressure, and people are going to find something else to do. But because this is of God, his kingdom will go forth. His word will be proclaimed. And so despite the persecution, more people are turning to Jesus. We also see the fulfillment of what Jesus said there in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will receive power. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, what's the power for? Not so that you can be powerful, but so that you will be a witness of Jesus here in Jerusalem, in the region of Judea, in the neighboring region of Samaria where there are different uh, races, different backgrounds, and then all the way to the ends of the earth. And here in the chapters we're going to look at today, that very prophecy is fulfilled. As the good news now goes from Jerusalem to Samaria, And then to the ends of the earth in the story we're going to focus on today in chapter 8 about the Ethiopian eunuch. All the way to Ethiopia, the good news is going forth. There are three pioneers of God's kingdom mission that are introduced in these chapters. Three new characters. So we've, we've already known the disciples from the first part of Acts, which is the Gospel of Luke. 
We've gotten to meet them as they've traveled with Jesus, heard his teaching, seen the miracles, been a part of all the aspects of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. But now in the book of Acts, as, as I said, this movement is going viral. And there's a whole new cast of characters that's introduced. In these three chapters, we meet Stephen, the first martyr there in Acts chapter 6 and 7. We meet Philip, whose who's message and sermon we're going to read today in Acts chapter 8. And then we also meet Saul, who goes through this dramatic Damascus Road conversion in Acts chapter 9. And as we read this, this isn't just a, a history lesson. This isn't uh, just a, a cute story for us to read today. This is really lessons for each of us as individuals and for our church. And the question that we bring now to God and to His Word as He speaks to us by His Spirit is how can we be people that God can use in His kingdom mission? We're going to see lessons from the lives of the people introduced in these chapters that will apply directly to us. How can we be the kind of people that God can use in His kingdom mission? We live in a very me-centered world, if you didn't know that. That's why we take selfies. You know, we've got this new invention, the selfie stick. We can take, you know, we didn't do that when I was a kid. You didn't turn your 35 millimeter toward yourself, take a picture, pay a quarter to get it developed so you can look at yourself. We didn't take picture of our fo- pictures of our food and get multiple copies printed and mail it out to our family and friends so they would know what we ate that day. But our world has gotten even more me-centered than it used to be. We've got, you know, it used to be MySpace, and it went to Facebook, and it's all this social media things that, that are very me-centered and me-focused. Unfortunately, we bring that attitude to God's Word. And so we start flipping through here looking for things that I like, things that resonate with me, things that you know I can pull out of context and put on my social media page because it's a cute little quote that I like. And yet if we read God's Word as if it were a book of people's ideas about God, we're going to miss the point. Because this book is actually God's thoughts about people. And so this book, we read it as believers, as the true story of everything. And there in your, in your uh, bulletin, there's an outline that may help you as you're thinking through, where does the book of Acts land in this big story? It's a story that begins with the Creator God who had a good plan. And that plan was tainted by sin. And yet God has always been at work redeeming humanity and creation to himself. First he used Israel. He chose Israel. Then Jesus himself, the king, arrives on the scene and he completes the work of redemption by his death and his resurrection and his faithfulness. And now we're in that fifth chapter of the story. The book of Acts is the beginning. We're still in the same story today. It's our kingdom mission. It's proclaiming the news of King Jesus through our words and through our actions. And there's one final chapter to come, and that's when the king returns. So that's where we are today in the book of Acts. This is not just a story from back then. This is the beginning of the the chapter, the story that you and I are a part of. So let's begin now here. We're going to look at a few verses from chapter 6. You're going to have to read a lot of this on your own time and with your family, with your life group. But we're going to look at a few verses from chapter 6 and then skip ahead to the story of Philip's encounter with the Ethiopian eunuch in chapter 8. So beginning in chapter 6, verse 1, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, 
a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. A few things to note there in that first verse. First of all, there's church growth happening. Do you notice that? The disciples were increasing in number. I'll submit to you that church growth is God's plan. That's why he said in Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you'll receive power to be witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth. God's plan is for men, women, boys and girls of every tongue, tribe and nation, every ethnic background, every social economic grouping to have a saving knowledge of Jesus as the Messiah, as the King. That's in God's plan. I hope you're on board with that plan, with that kingdom mission. That's the task that has been entrusted to you and I. If you're a follower of Jesus, it's not just enough to get your ticket to heaven. It's also our privilege and joy to share good news with those who have not yet heard. And so we're seeing now as the early church is being faithful, being obedient, as that message of Jesus is going forth, God is doing that work to bring church growth. Disciples are increasing in number. And yet there are, there's a threat to kingdom mission we're seeing here. The kingdom mission, uh, it's described here earlier in Acts. One of, the, one of the characteristics of the early church, sharing resources. There were people selling their possessions, giving to those in need. There was property being sold, pooled together so that earthly temporal resources could be leveraged for the eternal kingdom where rust and moth do not corrupt and thieves do not break in and steal. So people were using their tangible physical resources for God's glory, for his kingdom purposes. And yet there's a, there's a threat here to that unity, to that harmony that comes with sharing a, a debate between two different categories of believers, the Hellenists and the Hebrews. Well, what does that mean? Hellenists are the Greek-speaking Jewish converts. Okay, So these are people that came to Judaism through a Greek background. So we've got two different categories of originally Jewish people who have now recognized Jesus as the Messiah, and yet there are still some linguistic differences between them. There's some differences of background, some different perspectives, and there's a feeling that there's been some preferential treatment given to the widows of the Hebrew believers and these Greek-speaking followers of Jesus with the Jewish background are saying, you know, our widows, are, their needs are not being met. They're, they're coming later down the priority list. And that threat to unity in the church is quickly addressed. It's not tabled. It's not swept under the rug. It's not excused. It's addressed promptly. We've seen a similar uh, story just a couple chapters prior, chapter 5 actually, where there's a threat to that sharing, to that participation to the koinonia, the Greek word, fellowship together, sharing those resources, that threat that comes in the event described there by Ananias and Sapphira where they sell some property and pretend like they're bringing all that to be used in kingdom work when in actuality they're holding some back. And it's a, it's a way of trying to draw attention to themselves, make themselves uh, look like they're actually giving more and sacrificing more than they really are. And again, that threat to unity, to sharing of resources is quickly addressed in the early church. And so how is it addressed? Well, we find in verse 2. The twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you 
seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. So the 12, the, the original followers of Jesus, plus the replacement for Judas that we found earlier in the book of Acts, casting of lots, Matthias, chosen to replace Judas. So the 12 are saying, you know, we have important kingdom work to do as well. We are devoting ourselves to prayer and the word, and yet this complaint is legitimate. It needs to be addressed. But let's appoint some people. Let's delegate. Let's get this kingdom mission expanded beyond our own abilities and efforts. And notice that the entire assembly of disciples is involved in this decision. There are leaders and followers united together for God's kingdom mission. There's also this question that's kind of posed the hierarchy of value on these two tasks. Over here, preaching the word and prayer. Over here, serving tables and assuring that there's unity and that resources are shared in an equitable way. So the disciples are saying, you know, we, our work of the word and prayer is so important that we need to have some other people do this other task of serving tables. Kind of hold that question in your mind as this story unfolds. So what are the characteristics of these seven men who are going to be chosen to oversee this Hellenist widow food distribution program, we'll call it? Well, there in verse 3, a few things. First of all, implied is that they need to be willing to serve. This is a servant job, kind of like Elder Don challenged us this morning. There are opportunities to serve. If you go to one of these seven prospective uh, servants who is going to oversee this program and say, hey, you know, we've looked at your life. We see that you, you're firing on all the cylinders. You're of good repute. You have a good reputation. You're full of God's spirit. You have wisdom. We'd like to appoint you for this duty. And they go, yeah, I'm not willing to serve. They would, be, they would ex- exempt themselves from that blessing, that opportunity of bringing joy and using those gifts. So I'd say the first characteristic that's needed to be used in God's kingdom is a willingness to serve. And then there are some explicit requirements and characteristics laid out here. A good reputation. How do you get that? How do you acquire a good reputation? Well, it's by daily faithfulness. It builds up over time. And we've all done things to jeopardize that good reputation. We've all done, you know, stuck our foot in our mouths, had an error in judgment, had a severe lapse in character at some point in our past. Some things that we would not like projected up on the screen today if we had a video clip of that day. That driver that cut you off, that person at work that you gave a piece of your mind to. And yet the good news is that Redemption is an ongoing work. Sanctification, becoming Christ-like, is the work that God does in us. And so we bring that to Him, and as we walk with Him each day, as we are filled by His Spirit and walking in His Spirit, we start to look a little bit more like Jesus every day, and you get to a place where you go, that is a woman of good repute. That is a man with a good reputation. It's, it's that sum total of those daily decisions to obey and to follow. Full of the Spirit. That's the whole theme of the book of Acts to this point. It's the gift that God pours out. It's the power to follow after Him. Not in our own strength, 
not through human effort, but the God who calls us to himself, who is transforming us, gives us the fuel that we need to get the vehicle moving down that road. And it's his Holy Spirit. So are you filled with his Spirit? Are you being filled with his Spirit? Are you spending time in his word and in prayer? Are you saying, God, fill me anew today? And he delights in answering that prayer. So let's open ourselves up to that so that we can be the kind of people he can use in his kingdom work. And of wisdom. How do you acquire wisdom? When you see the word wisdom in the Bible, think skill. It's not book knowledge. It's not knowing information about something. Wisdom in in the Old Testament and the New Testament is really in the category of skill. Skill, again, is something you develop by that practice, by that discipline, by the faithfulness of walking in that. The word wisdom here in the book of Acts only occurs in these two chapters, 6 and 7. It's referred to, uh, Stephen is referred to as a man of wisdom. There's connections to a couple of Old Testament characters who had that skill that God gives. And there's a tie-in to Jesus himself. In Luke chapter 2, he's described as a young boy of growing in wisdom and in stature and in favor with both God and man. Jesus himself grew and developed skill for living in all of life's dimensions. And there's a need for us as believers to not come to that place where we think we've arrived. You know, I have enough knowledge of God's Word because I got a piece of paper that says I, I studied it back in Bible college. You know, or, or I, I went through enough years of Sunday school, I'm done now. Or I read through the Bible in a year, close that book. No, this is an ongoing work that God does in us as we are faithful to pursue Him to submit to Him, to allow Him to bring His transforming work to our hearts and our lives. And when we've followed after Him, when we've been faithful, we'll be people of good reputation, filled with His Spirit, having wisdom, and then we just add that willingness to serve and God can use us in His kingdom work, continue the unity within His body, ensure that the message of the gospel goes forth. So the, the disciples say in verse 4, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And the good news is what they said pleased the whole gathering. There's unity in the body. Leaders and followers working together, not in opposition. And so they chose, now listen to the, the names. There's a few that you're going to recognize, a few that you won't recognize, and I'll probably mispronounce. Stephen, a man full of faith, and of the Holy Spirit. Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. That's a theme again that you'll see often in the New Testament. Why are we afraid to touch people? When this happens over and over, as people are commissioned, Timothy is commissioned, The elders lay their hands on him and commission him to use the gift that God has given him. There's laying on of hands. There's healing is accompanied by prayer and the laying on of hands. And here, even as people are stepping out to serve and to use those gifts and that background of obedience and being filled with God's Spirit, there's prayer and touch involved. I think this is something we need to develop and foster and grow. And maybe when you hear of a need 
out there around the coffee pot, just stop and go, well, can I pray for you right now? Put a hand on a shoulder. Say, God, do your work. Continue to transform, empower. And so there's prayer and the word. There's this laying on of hands. There's unity. And despite the opposition that we've seen, imprisonment, threats, the Jewish leaders telling Peter and John a couple chapters before, well, okay, we'll let you go, but just don't proclaim the name of Jesus anymore. Despite all the opposition, verse 7 says this, the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Opposition has not stopped God's mission. And that opposition intensifies now as we go into the next section as Stephen is seized and he's accused of of, uh, bringing some opposition to Judaism itself. And he goes into a, a sermon that's not very nice. He summarizes the whole Old Testament and he really cuts to the heart of this opposition to Jesus the Messiah. At the end of that story, Stephen is stoned. Saul stands there approving. And what's the end result? Well, in chapter 8, verse 1, it says, There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered. All the believers were scattered. That sounds tragic. You know, there's the first martyr. A person has been stoned to death because they're proclaiming the good news. And now all the believers that were hanging out together in Jerusalem are scattered. I wonder where they're scattered. If only we, we had a place to go to find out where they were scattered to. Oh, here it is in verse 1. Through all the regions of Judea and Samaria. Does that ring a bell? What did Jesus say in Acts 1 8? You will be witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then he says, stay in Jerusalem until you are filled with power from on high. So how long are you supposed to stay in Jerusalem? Until you're filled with power from on high. That happened in chapter 2. What are you guys still doing in Jerusalem? When God gives a command... And he gives the equipping and the empowerment that's required to fulfill that command to proclaim King Jesus. Guess what? He will use either willing or unwilling servants. There are some little subtle hints that make me wonder as I look at the narrative here, chapter 6 through 9. First of all, we read the section in chapter 6 when the 12 say, We will devote ourselves to the ministry of the word and prayer. We need some other people to do table fellowship types of work and the people that they appoint Stephen and Philip Stephen in the very next chapter we're not seeing him waiting on tables we're hearing him preaching the word and dying as the first martyr who's over here boldly proclaiming the word then the next story we're going to find out is about Philip in fact this is the last we hear of the 12 in the book of Acts the only one of the 12 that we hear about ever again is Philip. Uh, sorry, Peter. So he's still in the story. And then here in this verse in chapter 8, as the church is now going out to fulfill God's mission 
via the path of suffering and persecution, being scattered. There's one more little phrase that just gives me pause. It says, they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. That word apostle in Greek means sent out ones. Interesting that the ones who were sent out are the ones that are still remaining in Jerusalem. And yet all the new converts, all the disciples, all the heroes of the story to come in the book of Acts are the ones that are going out and bringing good news everywhere. What I take from this is to say it's God's work. It's the work of God's Spirit. It's not of human wisdom, not of human effort. It's the wisdom that comes from God. It's the power that comes by His Spirit. He's no respecter of persons like we are. You know, we'll see somebody in the room, oh, that's an important person. I want to make sure I talk to them today. I want to be seen with them. I want to sit next to them at the place of honor. That's not how God works. He gets all the glory. He gets all the praise. He's the one that does the work. And he'll use insignificant names like the ones we met in chapter 6, many of whom I can't even pronounce because it's the only time their name occurs there. And yet now they're being scattered and there's good news being proclaimed in ways that we don't even know here in the book of Acts. That should be good news for you and I. Nobody's like us. That God uses people like us in our contexts, in our spheres of influence, in our neighborhoods, at our places of employment, our schools, our extended family. That's the way God's Spirit works. He pours out His Spirit on all flesh, young and old, male and female, and He commissions us to this high honor of proclaiming King Jesus to every tongue, tribe, and nation. So the Word is going forth. Are you on board? Are you a part of this? Have you experienced the joy of being a person that God can work through? I'd say, you know, we've seen some characteristics and examples of the type of a person God can use. And hopefully you've begun to think about one way that you can develop a spiritual discipline over this summer that will strengthen either your uh, wisdom and in, in skill in, in working for God's kingdom, your willingness to serve that, that characteristic of being of good repute, good reputation, layering in some disciplines there, or being filled with His Spirit. Maybe God's calling you to start stepping out in faith to lay hands on and pray for someone that you encounter. Or in that ministry of the Word where in order to open your mouth and proclaim as we're going to see Philip doing here at the end of chapter 8, there has to be some knowledge of God's Word that comes with that. That's a skill thing, right? You can develop that. If today you're saying, yeah, I just, I just don't know the Bible that well. I can't really proclaim King Jesus. Well, stop using that as an excuse. Look at it. It's a book. God has revealed himself to us through his word. You can actually open this and read it in big chunks or little chunks. Get in his word and get it in your heart. And then when you open your mouth to speak, you'll be able to proclaim his word because you'll have some heart knowledge of the contents here of God revealing himself. Maybe God's calling you to be a part of leading and following in harmony. Maybe you've resisted that. And God's saying, well, let's work together for my kingdom. Let's act decisively and soon to resolve any threats to unity within the body because the world's looking in. And by our love, they will know that we are his followers. 
That's something we can each be a part of. Maybe this summer there is a spiritual discipline that God is calling you to. Fasting. Setting aside a meal or a day's worth of meals or longer. Saying, God, I'm going to deal with this appetite that is a part of my life so I can focus on where my appetites are directed. That we can hunger and thirst after righteousness more than whatever's in that refrigerator. I encourage you to explore that spiritual discipline. Maybe journaling where it can be a way of you in a disciplined fashion tracking your development and progress in Christ-likeness. Saying, here's what I'm struggling with. Here's what I'm wondering about. Here's what God is challenging me to. And taking pen to paper and just going through that way of reducing some of the clutter in our minds and the distractions that pull our hearts in lots of different directions and say, no God, I want to develop my heart and my mind to be used for you and for your glory. Maybe through establishing a mentoring relationship. Either as someone that looks back over your shoulder and says, who's someone younger in the faith that I can help bring along? And that's an investment of time. Saying, I'm I'm going to pursue a connection, a relationship with someone that I can encourage and pray for. Or maybe it's for you to say, hey, I need a, a more mature follower of Christ who's been developing this wisdom and this good reputation and this spirit-filled way of living longer than I have and I'm going to hunt them down and say, hey, would you spend some time with me? Would you give me some of your wisdom? Help me to grow in my Christ-likeness? Maybe it's as Don challenged us this morning, find a way to serve. Look and see, you know, what, what are my abilities? What are my desires? How does that align with a need here in this body? And how can I be a part of building for God's kingdom using the gifts that he's given to me? Become that person that God can work through. So we've seen here now as the church is being scattered, the, the gospel's going forth to places like Samaria. Not just staying in Jerusalem where there's all these Jewish background believers, but now we're going to a new region with the good news. Places that Jews avoided. And yet the gospel goes to Samaria. Philip, now in the next section, proclaims the good news there in Samaria. We have, we have a story of Simon the magician who comes to Christ, but there's still some baggage from his past that's brought forward. And he sees as the apostles are laying hands on people and praying for them that God's spirit is coming in power. And he's going, that is cool. I would like that ability. In fact, guys, what would it cost for me to have that Holy Spirit power so that when I lay hands on people, they'll get filled with the Holy Spirit. And again, they, they put a, a swift stop to that. They sternly rebuke Simon. They say that's not the way God's Spirit works. It's not so that you can be cool, that you can make a name for yourself, that, oh, I'm the person who laid hands on someone and they got filled with the Holy Spirit. This is all about God. It's all about His power. And Simon responds to that rebuke he says pray for me there's repentance there's a change of heart at the end of that story again it's a reminder that it's God at work it's not our efforts it's not our abilities it's all God all day and it's him building his kingdom and using people like you and I so Philip is now proclaiming King Jesus through both word and deed he's preaching from the Old Testament he's retelling the story of Jesus Dying to pay the price for the sins of everyone, everywhere. And he's also 
proclaiming King Jesus indeed. He's, there's, there are miracles that are accompanying. There's God's Holy Spirit being poured out. And so now we get to this uh, story here beginning in verse 26 of chapter 8. Maybe you've wondered, how does God speak? How does he guide someone like me in those particular day-to-day decisions? You know, in the big picture ways, we've got his word, right? Follow after Jesus, spend time being transformed, develop those fruits of the Spirit that are available to us. But what about, you know, the decision about do I sell my house or not? What job should I work? What school should my kids go to? How about in those decisions, how does God speak and lead? Well, in this story of Philip and his encounter with the Ethiopian eunuch, we're going to see several examples of God speaking through a variety of means. And this is not a comprehensive list. It's just one story of many, many ways that God speaks to Philip directly and guides him in this particular day. So let's begin in verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. That's a pretty dramatic message from God. An angel comes and audibly speaks to Philip, says, Get up, go down toward the desert to the road. Maybe God has spoken to you in in an audible voice at some point. I have not had that experience. But I don't discount it because I see it in God's Word. And if God sent a messenger from heaven to speak to Philip, I believe he can do that today. Now, Philip has a choice. He could argue. He could sit on his haunches. He could delay. And yet, those are not the options that Philip goes for. We see in verse 27, simply, he rose and went. He doesn't have real clear marching orders at this point. It's, Philip, go in this general direction. Go toward the road, toward the desert, and await further instructions. And I'd say God tends to speak to people who are on the move. God tends to lead and guide those who get up and obey. And the the instructions get more specific and more narrow as we follow the general instructions he gives us. So so God leads Philip in this dramatic way and he's directing his steps and now as Philip is hearing and he's obeying, there are more instructions that come. So as he rose and went there, verse 27, there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. And was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. I'd say, you know, this is a a more subtle way that God is leading, but, you know, if you are a follower of Jesus, and an angel comes and says, go down in this direction, and as you go down there, there happens to be this official from a foreign land who is heading toward Jerusalem to worship, and he's reading from the scroll of Isaiah. That could be God speaking to you and leading you. It could be maybe not just a coincidence that you happen to be there. With the knowledge of God's word, the wisdom, the filling of God's spirit to be able to make a difference in this event, 
God will put you in circumstances for a reason. If you're aware of a need, if you hear someone asking a spiritual question, it's not an accident. God has led you to that point, and he wants to use you in that situation. So Philip, again, is getting more confirmation, more leading that God is, is calling him to, to a specific task and a specific purpose. He's, he's listening. He's observing. He's recognizing a need. God is calling him to act. We have a, you know, there's a, 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 a phrase that's often used in a disparaging way called seeker-sensitive. Okay, and what that really means is a form of Christianity that's kind of bought into American consumerism. Kind of, you know, give... Give people what, they, what their itching ears want to hear. You know, create a lot of pizzazz and wow and bang without a lot of substance and without being rooted in God's Word. But if ever there were a seeker, it is this Ethiopian eunuch. And there is a need to be seeker-sensitive, to have our antennas up in the best sense of the way, to look for the people that are on their way to Jerusalem to worship and have the scroll of Isaiah opened and God has already been tilling up the soil of their hearts and all we have to do is put a little seed of good news there and he's going to bring the increase. There are truly seekers that are out there and they're wondering, what is the meaning of life? What's it all about? Is there a God? That's a seeker. Seeker's not somebody that's saying, you know, What's something I can enjoy that will make me comfortable, that will repeat the messages I already believe? That's just American consumerism. But there is a seeker sensitivity that is being in tune with God's Spirit so that when He puts you in that place, you get the joy of bringing good news to a heart that's ready, that God is drawing to Himself. And if the circumstances and the opportunity were not enough god further instructs philip here in verse 29 the spirit said to philip go over and join this chariot so again he's heard from an angel he's seen the need now as he approaches this chariot and then god's spirit speaks to him maybe in his heart maybe in a thought that he's dropped into his mind we don't have a lot of explanation on how god's spirit spoke in this in this time but yet philip knew that god was calling him to now make a move and head toward the chariot. So Philip, now listen, listen to Philip's reaction now. The Spirit said, go over. Philip ran. He was eager. He, it's getting more exciting as he obeys, as he hears God's voice. Now he's not just getting up and going toward the road, but he's running to obey and approaching that chariot. And he heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? He begins with a question. In his presentation of the gospel, he remembers, I've got two ears and one mouth. And he starts with a question. Let me understand the context of this person. What are the needs of this man from a foreign land in a chariot? I've never met the guy. I'm taking it all in. He's taking some time to understand the context so that as he presents the gospel, it will be in a way that will bring transformation, not just well, let me open up my gospel presentation. This is the way I lay it out every time. Yet there's some, there's some Holy Spirit-inspired creativity that's about to happen as God orchestrates these two lives that are now connecting where there's a, a story of an Ethiopian eunuch that God has been drawing and there's this man who's been willing to serve, filled with his spirit, 
following Jesus, acquiring wisdom of good repute, now gets an opportunity not to just serve tables, but to proclaim the gospel to a person who needs it in a way that's comprehensible to him. Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I? Unless someone guides me. Have you ever had an opportunity like that where somebody says basically, would you present the gospel to me? This is, it's just served up right here for Philip. Unless someone guides me. And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Quoting from Isaiah. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe this generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. The eunuch's reading this with a puzzled look on his face. He says to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? And now, Philip, listen to how the gospel message begins. Philip opened his mouth. That's how sharing good news always begins. It is necessary to use words. Philip opened his mouth. And beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Okay, Philip had read his Old Testament enough that when this man from a foreign land read an obscure passage from an Old Testament book, he could say, I can connect that to the good news of Jesus. And he was ready. He was willing. He was prepared. He was hearing, seeing, obeying. And now he opens his mouth and he begins to explain. Again, this isn't because Philip's a smart dude, because Philip's a Bible scholar. God is at work and he's using a man named Philip in his kingdom mission. And if you are willing to open your mouth, God will take whatever knowledge of his word that you have acquired to this point and he will add his Holy Spirit and he will multiply and add to his kingdom by his work using someone like you who's available to him. So there's obedience that's required. There's a willingness to serve and there's that risk of opening your mouth and proclaiming and then leaving the results up to him. He's the one who brings the increase. Well, the next thing that happens as this new convert is beginning to experience joy, we'll find out, is baptism. Verse 36, as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. I'm afraid that we've turned baptism into something other than what it was in the early church. Here we see this guy is just a brand new baby Christian. You know, we don't even know if he's prayed the sinner's prayer yet. And yet this is what baptism is. Baptism is an initiation. It's a first step. It's saying, I'm identifying with Christ. I am making the decision to repent today, to yield to God's Spirit drawing me to Himself. I'm becoming a new creation. The old me is dead, and I'm now alive to Christ. What we have at times turned baptism into is 
many steps down the road where we're kind of watching for evidence of sanctification or you know there's the there's a a waiting period now let's just wait and see if this salvation sticks before we do the big ceremony right and yet here this is just raw and fresh the eunuch's excited the ethiopian guy he's saying i'm in in fact let's make it official right now it's not that his salvation is connected to this baptism that you need to be baptized to be saved it's not a work, it's not an action. And yet it's a very normal thing that you repent and then you be baptized. And that's the beginning of the journey of following Jesus, turning from sin and turning to God. Maybe you've been waiting. Maybe you've waited so long that you're going, now it's awkward. I've been a, I've been a follower of Jesus for like 10 years and I'm kind of pretty old to be seen in a swimming suit in the pool at Grandview for all my church friends. Yet I'd encourage you to take that step of obedience because it'll help the next generation of believers to go, okay, man, if he's getting in a bathing suit with that pasty white body, <laughs> I'm going to be dunked too. Here's some water. What prevents me from being baptized today? You know, we have water right here every Sunday. We can do a baptism pretty much any Sunday unless there's a swim meet. Even then, we can say, can you guys go one lane over? We need to dunk somebody here. And so there is an, we are bapti- we're, we're a Baptist church. So we should be doing some more baptisms around here. Talk to me or one of the pastors or elders if that's a step of obedience that God is calling you to. And let's, let's make this a more normal part of our Christian life. Baptism as initiation. And now listen to the dramatic end of this story as we wrap up chapter 8 here. Verse 39. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. And, he, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. This is the guy that's supposed to be waiting on tables with the widows. And look at how, how specific and how powerful the leading of God has become in his life. From, from first an angel sent by God to say, go on down towards that road. God's Spirit speaking to him, saying, head over to that particular chariot. Observe, listen, question, and get ready because I'm going to use you to open your mouth and proclaim good news. The Spirit leading him, and now the Spirit picking him up and putting him in another place. And when he gets there, what does he do? He starts proclaiming the good news about Jesus right where he's got him. I don't know if God is going to teletransport you to some new location this week. If he's going to speak to you by his spirit, I know that he has spoken through his word. And when you take time to open this up, the places that he leads you, the situation that he sets you in, it may be because you're terminated from a position. And he, through a process, picks you up and sticks you in a new place. says, I've got you in a place that good news needs to be proclaimed. Whether it's a jail cell, a new neighborhood, a move. There's scattering that happens as a normal part of the Christian experience. There's persecution that we should anticipate, and yet there's joy in following Him and obeying day by day. How is He speaking to you? What habits are you developing that enable you to hear His voice? There are programmers whose daily job is to create ways for you to be addicted to that device in your pocket or in your purse. 
And if you yield and give in, you'll be so distracted from hearing from God, you'll miss that first subtle way that God speaks. And you'll miss out on that more refined and specific path that he has for you. You'll miss the the voice of that person reading from the scroll of Isaiah, headed to Jerusalem to worship. So we as, we as believers in our, in our lives and in our families, we need to draw a line in the sand and go, no, I'm not going to get sucked into worshiping the gods of all this technology and entertainment. I want to be at a place where there's boredom and there's reflection and there's looking out at, at some mountains so that I can get to that place where I can hear God speaking and leading and guiding and he can direct my thoughts not be distracted by everything that's glittery and shiny around me. Quickly, at the end, I want to give you a few examples from these chapters of the characteristics of a church that grows. That's what this section is all about. The, the, the disciples are increasing. God is adding to their numbers, even people in Samaria, even people from Ethiopia. What are some of those characteristics that we've seen today? I've got eight, if you're taking notes. First of all, we've talked about being committed to sharing and unity. We saw there in the story of Ananias and Sapphira in chapter 5, the threats to unity and sharing were quickly addressed. Also, there in chapter 6, where there was this complaint about unfair sharing. We see another characteristic of a church that grows, people who are devoted to prayer and the Word. There in chapter 6, we heard the disciples saying, this is a value. This is important. We need to have people whose way of serving is by devoting themselves to prayer and the Word and to value that and affirm that in our body. We see there, there in, in chapter 6 an example of a plurality of leadership. In other words, shared leadership. Not just one CEO, one five-star general barking out orders and everyone else snapping to attention, but but a group of leaders gathering together and then bringing all the disciples and coming to a place of spirit-filled unity. This doesn't happen with normal humans. The more people you get making a decision, the bigger the disaster becomes. But when God is at work, when, he, when, the, when the chain of command is God and the rest of us, it can be pretty exciting. And so that's the picture we see here where it's not a centralized power. This thing is going viral. And there's nobody's coming into the story becoming the first martyr, becoming the one who gets to bring the message to Samaria and to Ethiopia, people who weren't a part of the story before this. Who are the people from our neighborhood that God is going to use you and I to reach with the gospel, and then they're going to go beyond us in serving for God and fulfilling his kingdom mission? It's his work, and he's the one building his church. If we as individuals and as a church are to grow, there are some characteristics we've seen here in these chapters. Wisdom, grace, favor, power. Chapter 6 and 7. And also that connection to Luke 2 where Jesus himself has these very characteristics that he gives to his followers. There's faithfulness in hardship. Unfortunately, that that consumer Christianity that I described earlier, that produces soft believers with shallow roots. I've got this patch of dead grass in my backyard. It doesn't matter how much water I put on it. 
how many times I top dress it and reseed it, it's always dead. And I found out the other day why when I dug up a little bit of that sod, quote unquote sod, and found about two inches of soil with that beautiful southeast aurora hard clay, a few rocks mixed in right underneath that. Well, it's never going to grow. All that grass has shallow roots. I've got to get another load of manure from Mac, I think, to get some, some depth there to be able to have some roots that sink down and can grow. To be faithful in hardship requires some deep roots. Sinking down into God's word, allowing his spirit to penetrate our hearts, dwelling with him, abiding in the vine, not just a dead branch laying off there alone, not an appendage, a body part severed from the body, but remaining in the vine, connected with other believers, tapping into the power source. That's where the deep roots come from. And we've enjoyed a season of freedom in this country, religious freedom. That's not guaranteed. It's a rarity. Take a trip with Pastor Mark to a different part of the world. You'll see a very different form of Christianity. Today, in the year 2018, in other parts of this world. And throughout history, what we're living in right now is an anomaly, not the norm. If we're not prepared to suffer, if we've got shallow roots, when the heat gets turned up, when the pressure comes, will we remain faithful? Churches that grow are faithful in hardship. Churches that grow proclaim King Jesus in word and deed. We've seen that over and over again in the book of Acts. There is that opening of your mouth, knowing God's word so that you can present the gospel. That's the, the number one punch. The number two punch, the one-two punch, is the deeds that come, laying on of hands, seeing God work, proclaiming King Jesus through our faithfulness, through our obedience, through the miracles that come as we, his people, go out, led by his spirit, praying for healing. We see Philip there in Samaria and with the Ethiopian proclaiming the good news. Saul, immediately after his conversion, what does he do? Chapter 9, he proclaims Jesus in the synagogues. The believers are freaked out. Wait a minute, this is the persecutor of the church. What's he doing preaching Jesus in the synagogues? And there's some fear because he's just a baby convert and they know who he used to be. Yet, baptism and proclamation of Jesus comes early on. You don't need to wait so you've got a seminary degree to proclaim King Jesus. Peter proclaims Jesus through the ministry of healing and even resurrection. Healing Tabitha, raising her from the dead in chapter, at the end of chapter 9. Two more characteristics that I see in this section. Walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Beautiful verse there in chapter 9, verse 31. The church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort, comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Does that describe your life? Is God calling you to help nurture that in our church? That we walk in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of His Holy Spirit. Those two together, really, you know, you can't separate God's Word from His Spirit. They go, to, they go hand in hand. This, this is God's revelation of himself. The Holy Spirit illuminates his word to us, allows us to understand it, to apply it, to live it out. So we need both. We need 
God's power, his word. We need his Holy Spirit working in our hearts. And then he brings the increase. And finally, a theme I see a couple times here in chapter 8, a characteristic of a church that grows, that kind of a church brings joy. Philip's ministry in Samaria, there in chapter 8, verse 8, says, so there was much joy in that city. At the end of the encounter with the Ethiopian eunuch, if it were me, if I was the guy in the chariot reading from Isaiah and this guy comes, answers the questions I'm looking for, I'm getting excited, I get dunked in the water nearby, and all of a sudden he like vanishes, I might be a little bit freaked out. And yet, what does it say about Philip as, or, or the, the Ethiopian eunuch as Philip, Philip is moved by God to a new location to proclaim good news? It says the Ethiopian eunuch went on his way rejoicing. Say, man, God has transformed me so much. I'm just excited. I don't care that this dude just vanished. I'm rejoicing. I'm excited. And and that good news goes forth. Can we make that our corporate prayer today that we as individuals and as a body develop these characteristics of a church that grows, that we submit ourselves to God's spirit, we base our faith on his word, we proclaim Jesus in word and deed. Why don't we stand together? Would it be too weird to join hands today? We talked about laying out of hands and praying. But just as a sign of unity, a sign of our commitment to preserving that unity, that sharing, that participation that we saw the early church practice, let's join hands and let's pray. Give our hearts to him today. God, I thank you for each believer here in this room committed to following after you no matter where you lead or guide. Lord, forgive us for the times that our ears have been too clogged up, our eyes have been too blinded, our minds have been too distracted to hear your Spirit leading us. God, today we we make a decision to turn a corner and to go in a new path, to build into our lives margin, and disciplines that will allow us and enable us to hear you, and not just to hear, but to obey. God, thank you for the excitement that we've seen here in the early church. As your word is going forth, as there's words like increasing and multiplying, addition happening there, as your word is going forth to new regions and new people groups, as there's healings that are happening. And God, if you could use people like Philip, people like Stephen, if you could reach a hard, bitter heart like Saul, then, Lord, you can use willing servants like we see here in this room. We pray that we would be people of good repute, people filled with your spirit, people possessing wisdom from you, willing to serve, willing to be used by you, and then we trust you for the increase. God, if there's a a person here today whose heart has been hard to you and they're not yet a Christ follower, I pray that today would be that Damascus Road experience as you reached Saul in chapter 9 and he saw you for who you are. If there's a person in this room that you're drawing to yourself, I pray that they would see you, Jesus, as the only hope, as the Savior, as the one who pays the price for our sins, that today they would go on their way rejoicing because they've met you. God, use us this week, we pray. We make ourselves available to you. We pray that we would be vessels that you can work through. Increase the unity in our body. 
Help us to be faithful in hardship currently or in the future. And may we proclaim King Jesus in word and deed this week, no matter where you call us. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Make this your...